I'm Nils Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. This episode features my recent interview with Jerry Sever of Plant-Based Business Week, an online conference that showcased 30 plus of the world's top experts across the plant-based industry. Now this episode is a little bit different than our usual format because I'm the one being interviewed. In my conversation with Jerry, I get into what inspired me to start One Green Planet and how I translated my personal search to find the most sustainable way of eating and living into our editorial mission and strategy. One big focus of this interview is my core belief that media has the power to shape the future of food and how the rapid evolution of media and technology in the past 10 years or so has fueled the rise of the plant-based food space. I also get into the power of storytelling, as well as simple branding and content marketing strategies that all businesses can use to thrive in an age where information is abundant and attention is scarce. If you work in the food space or are curious about trends and products that may shape the future of our food system, I hope you will find this episode useful. Hey, this is Jerry Saver in in this keynote interview of Plant-Based Business Week, I'm talking to Neil Zacharias. Now, Neil is the co-founder of One Green Planet, the largest and fastest growing independent platform in the food sustainability space. He's also the host of the popular weekly podcast, Eat for the Planet with Neil Zacharias and co-author of the upcoming book, Eat for the Planet, which is going to be published in spring of 2018. Now, Neil believes in empowering people to make planet-friendly food choices, as well as supporting innovation in the food industry. And the thing about him, though, is that his background is not that of a vegan activist or anything. He was actually an intellectual property lawyer and worked in digital media and online advertising prior to funding One Green Planet, which is probably part of its huge success, but that's part of the story that I'll let him share. So Neil, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me on this. Yeah, well, you know, I I alluded to your background story and I, I know a little bit about it, but would you mind to, to kick this off just sharing a, a bit about just how you made the transition from meat eater to vegan, because that probably came before One Green Planet. If I'm, am I right? Yeah. Yes. Definitely. I think of um, you know I grew up eating meat. I um, I jokingly tell people that I was a, a meat enthusiast. I was uh, that was the food I was used to. That's my idea of good food and. You know, by no means am I saying I have a problem with the taste of meat. The problem I have is the high price that we have to pay for cheap meat. So I was a meat eater most of my life, and that changed in the year 2010. I um, had a vacation planned to South America, specifically to Brazil and Argentina. And I had heard a lot about the amazing grass-fed beef that you could uh, find in South America. So being a meat enthusiast, I uh, went there and was very curious to try this beef. And I loved it so much to the extent where I was literally eating it three times a day. And I'm not exaggerating. I was uh, was finding ways to incorporate beef in every meal. Um, 
And during that trip, toward the end of the trip, I ended up in a conversation with uh, one of the locals because I was very curious about the way they produced their meat in uh, Argentina specifically. And uh, I was wondering how is it that their meat tasted so different from anything I had previously tasted in the US. And what I expected to hear about was this amazing industry that was uh, going back to the roots of how farming used to be, or at least has never changed over the years versus factory farming in the US. And what I heard was a very different story, actually. He told me that the standards were going much lower in South America. And he also informed me about things that I had no idea about, um, like deforestation that was happening in parts of South America to make room for crops like corn and soy, which was then fed to livestock. And then that was turned into beef that was exported to countries like the US. Um, and then other forests were being chopped down to just create more room for cattle to graze. And that's something I had no idea about until that point. So I got back to the US after this great vacation to New York and um, I decided I was going to stop eating red meat for a while. And to be honest, that had nothing to do with the deforestation specifically. It had to do with the fact that I had just eaten too much of it. And, um, you know, I needed to eat a little healthy after a great vacation. but. I had this lingering thought in my mind um, about that conversation I had about deforestation and out of curiosity I started to read what I could find online about um, meat production and um, you know that led me down a rabbit hole of research uh, pretty much reading every book I could find every research report every journal article or uh, research paper that was out there talking about how meat was produced and that led me to learn about how all food was produced. To cut a long story short, six months after that vacation, I found myself at a point where I felt like I had a really good understanding of how the industrial food system worked, specifically industrial meat, dairy and eggs. And knowing what I did, I felt like I had to change the way I ate or I could no longer continue living uh, being intellectually dishonest. So I reached a point where I needed to make a decision. And the kind of person I am, I, when I see a complex problem, I try to find the simplest solution. And I'm also a big fan of just, when I decide something, making a commitment to doing it. So for me, that simple solution was to just opt out of the entire system, instead of trying to find sustainable meat or humane meat or finding local X, Y, and Z, I just said, well, I'm just not going to partake in any of it. So one day, I think it was around June of 2010, I woke up and decided I was going to be vegan. So that's really how this whole journey began for me. Right. So when, when you did that transition, or were you decided to, to go vegan or, or plant-based? Or, or actually, how, how do you describe yourself now? Yeah, I mean, I tend to use the word vegan. Uh, I think it's primarily because most people are just uh, familiar with the idea of what a vegan is. Um, and also because I'm not the kind of person who goes around telling people I'm vegan and, um, you know, this is what I eat and what I don't eat and this is what I believe and this is what you should believe. But I sometimes when I'm probably ordering food or eating out with people, I tend to get the question, so, oh, are you vegan? And in those circumstances, I um, obviously answer saying yes. Or I, if I were to answer saying yes, I'm vegan. No, I, I, but I prefer to be called plant-based. That would sound a little weird. So 
I just go and say I'm vegan and that's just what I use. But, you know, I do vary it depending on the context. If someone, for whatever reason, is asking me about um, what I specifically choose to eat on a given day, I um, sometimes would say, well, I'm vegan and I try to eat mostly whole food, plant-based. Uh, so it depends on the context, of course. Um, but that's just me and how I describe myself. Yeah. What about in the context of uh, One Green Planet? Like, um, because it's not just my impression of it. It's not super vocal on on the use of either. But how how do you use the terms? Yeah, that's a good question. I think well, the simple answer is we use both. We use vegan and we use plant based. And I'm sure we can just chat for an hour on just these two terms. It's a pretty interesting topic. The way I look at it, I and I think about it, I feel the term vegan for consumers, for people's minds, it brings up an identity. People associate the word vegan with an identity and they tend to associate the word plant-based with a choice. So, you know, for example, when you say you're vegan, it usually comes along with a burden of what that identity is, which is an entire worldview. It's a way of of looking at things, of being, of thinking, versus plant-based is, I'm just eating plant-based and I can be anything else any other given time. I guess a, a, a related example I could give is, you know, some people say, I meditate, versus don't want to be identified as being Buddhist or spiritual. Um, not to equate veganism to religion, but you know, it's t it tends to be, a pretty loaded term and uh, because of the broad nature of that term and the scope of what it means I think some people are turned off by it and um, the reason is because of this and that's just how I look at it from my understanding I'm not even sure if that really makes sense oh um, it, it makes a lot of sense definitely yeah and you know we have to keep in mind that one green planet is a digital media property so language is very important for us we have to use the language that our end readers or consumers of the media that we create resonate with the most. So, and it also depends on where they consume this information. Some people are finding the content on our platform using search engines. Some people are finding the content while scrolling their social media feeds. Um, others are subscribing to our newsletter or listening to a podcast. And we tend to vary how we use the word. So, for example, if you're talking about food in the context of, say, donuts or cupcakes, we'd say vegan donuts and cupcakes. Uh, but if you were talking or had an article about the health benefits of, um, of eating more fruits and vegetables, we'd probably call it the plant-based diet or the benefits of a plant-based diet. So we change it according to the context and sometimes according to the channel of communication as well. Um, and keeping in mind at the end of the day who the end audience is and who the end consumer of that media is. And you have to also keep in mind that a majority of One Green Planet's monthly visitors, over 6 million now, majority of them are not vegan, or at least don't identify as vegan or plant-based. Um, they could discover the content on One Green Planet through a range of sources, and they could come in wanting to see a range of things. So, for example, you could have... a a consumer or end user who is interested in food and has just stumbled upon a recipe that someone shared on a social media platform from One Green Planet and they decide to come and check it out without even knowing it's vegan. 
or in some cases they are specifically looking for vegan recipes or plant-based recipes and they, they, they come to our recipe channel. Or they could be coming to One Green Planet to read animal protection, animal rights and uh, rescue content or environmental content or how is it that our food is connected to the environment. So since we tend to cast a pretty wide net in terms of the topics we cover, we have to keep in mind that all our content is designed in a way to bring people in versus push them away. And so we have to be very careful. And I'll give you an example of that. When we talk about animal rescues, for example, even if it's a farm animal rescue, we don't talk about vegan food. You know, I think people are smart enough. They'll make those connections. Um, and that's, again, only because we're a digital media property and we have to, at the end of the day, we're trying to get content to people or we're trying to pull people in with our content. If we were, say, a food startup or a food company and a creating a product or we were an e-commerce site, I would probably have a different take on this. Yeah, but you know, in, in your answer, you definitely showed a lot of um, your past work experience with, with media and, and with advertising. So would you mind telling a little bit more about that, like your personal experience, the stuff that laid the, the foundation for, for One Green Planet? Yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. I think my, my background professionally and my interest personally is what led me to this point. Um, so I know you mentioned it right in the beginning, but I started my career as an intellectual property lawyer. Uh, for people who are not familiar with what that covers, I was more specifically focused on copyright and trademark law. And the reason I decided to go in that direction after my law degree and actually during law school was because I was very fascinated with um, media and the entertainment industry, as well as the technology of media, specifically the internet, which was fairly new thing at that point. So I'm dating myself now. So, uh, um, so I, after working for about two years in, um, in a law firm, ended up spending about 12 years in the digital media space at various different internet companies and consulting firms. And I think over the years, not only did I gather a lot of crucial skill sets, which I think are important to do anything in the future if you're going to be an entrepreneur or go get another job. More importantly, I think that I developed a very good understanding of the media landscape. So I think I'm very familiar with how content creation works, content distribution, as well as monetization. And that is sort of the bedrock of my experience and the fundamentals of of my professional experience. You also have to keep in mind, as I mentioned, is that when I've been professionally involved in the internet space or digital media space since the early 2000s now. So I was lucky to be able to see this emergence from search engines like Yahoo evolving to search engines like Google in the early 2000s to then blogging emerging as a tool to then uh, you know YouTube and social media and then eventually uh, the, um, the dawn of the smartphone, which sort of changed everything, right? So I, I was very lucky to see that growth and evolution and understand, that the, understand the real power of digital media. And I think just to give uh, viewers and listeners a sense of um, what the importance of that is, is if you even look back, say, in the 90s, okay, which wasn't that long ago, you had media production and distribution which was very controlled so you had 
things like TV networks or you had radio stations and they largely controlled the distribution of, of media. And so what ended up happening is a lot of important ideas usually got drowned out or shoved to the side because the ideas that were given the most attention were the ones that potentially made the most money or who advertisers were going to pay for. And that all changed after the internet came about. So the internet brought those tools of content creation to everyone. Everyone had a voice. And then eventually everyone had a distribution channel. And that completely changed the game in the 2000s where people were, you know, now you, you could be sitting anywhere in any part of the world and be creating media. And the result of that is now in the last 10, 15 years, we've seen this explosion of content creation and content consumption because you now have the smartphone where you can access content everywhere at any given time, right? So that's completely changed the game. The new problem we do have now is that it's not about ideas getting drowned because big networks and radio stations won't cover them. The problem is we have too many ideas now. And a lot of those ideas are contradictory. And a lot of these ideas kind of uh, conflict with other ideas you read about. So one day you read, oh, plant-based diet is good for you. The next day you read, um, ketogenic diet is great for you. Um, and then, you know, just taking it outside our space and generally, that's what's given rise to this, I think, given rise to this whole concept of uh, fake news. Because, you know, if anyone can control content creation and distribution, you can sort of come up with your own message and your own uh, truths. Um, and that's the world we live in. So from a personal standpoint and professionally, I'm just fascinated by all of this, the evolution of media. That's something that I've always been fascinated with because I think it's one of the big opportunities of our time, obviously, in terms of the power of this medium, but it's also one of the biggest challenges we're facing today. How do you get the right idea, the right message to the right people at the right time? And that's no easy task at all. So bringing it back to the context of what I do now at One Green Planet, and um, let's, let's put that into context now. What I'm trying to do with One Green Planet is to get people to wake up to what is happening with our food system, to help them make the connection between their food choices and the destruction of our environment and human health and animals' lives. And I want to do that using media so that other people won't have to go take a vacation to South America, eat a whole bunch of beef, come back, research for six months, and then decide I need to make a change. I kind of, in some ways, want to shorten that cycle that I had to go through when I first woke up to these ideas. Yeah, which actually is one, one of the functions of, of media as well, and especially this these new forms of media is that they can make these processes a lot shorter and a lot more accessible to, to people as well. But, you know, since you, you mentioned those changes, um, how about the more recent ones? Because right now this was an overview of the past 10, 15 years. And, and just to date myself, my, my favorite search engine when, when I started on the internet was Altavista, which you, you probably <laughs> remember too. But, um, if, if we're just talking the, the past four years, because One Green Planet, it, you started it in 2013, right? Yeah, that was the time when we officially launched One Green Planet. Yeah. Um, so how, how do you see the changes in the media landscape? And specifically, if we're talking about vegan media companies from then until now, because there's definitely 
been some some changes there as well oh it's been huge i mean i would have never expected it to happen in in just four years um when we were starting out there wasn't really anything like us in terms of what i had set out to do there were definitely a lot of um vegan blogs there were a lot of vegan food blogs majority of them were focused on the vegan community itself uh, there were also and still continue to be some vegan lifestyle magazines um, but they didn't have a significant online presence so another thing to keep in mind is that and i sort of alluded to this earlier is my approach was i wanted to connect the dots between things like animal protection, food, and environmental destruction. So that was what I had set out to do. And no one else was kind of doing that in the way that we have done it. And just to give a sense of what that's led to, I mean, the proof is in what we've, what we've built in the last four years. It's, it's no accident that we had now have, uh, the I think, probably the biggest database of uh, vegan plant-based recipes on the Internet right now. In addition, we have a tremendous archive of content focused on animal protection and conservation and environmental protection and conservation. And we've had some of the foremost experts in the field right on our site. We've had everyone from Captain Paul Watson from Sea Shepherd to Richard Branson, who've published articles on our site. And on top of that, we also you know, have managed to to give you another sense of other things we tried and continue to do is we were, we were one of the first sites that focused on doing farm animal rescue stories. And uh, we, we, would, we were very keen on trying to tell the stories of farm animals so people would maybe understand what they have been through and how they, there was an alternative life that they could lead once they were taken out of this destructive um, animal, industrial animal agriculture system. Uh, we were also undoubtedly one of the first site uh, that was talking about the connection between our food habits and the environment. Um, so since that was one of the key reasons I even got into this space, that's been my focus. That explains why we have um, our Eat for the Planet page, my Eat for the Planet podcast and the, and the book that's coming out next year is how do we draw those connections and do it in a meaningful way. In terms of what things have changed now, you know, in the last four years, there's been a, a huge explosion of ideas, products, uh, people in this space. So, you know, today you have um, sites and media properties that are more focused. You can, you can build an entire media property in this space that's only talking about vegan products, vegan trends, uh, restaurants product launches and things like that. Um, or you could only focus on animal protection and do animal videos or do focus on cute animal videos and make that your thing, right? There's so many opportunities right now for media and that wasn't there, you know, four years ago. Also, from a consumer standpoint, things have really changed. People are interested in very specific things now. Well, you know, back then you just heard the word vegan and, and most people didn't know what that meant or you heard animal rights or animal welfare or environmentalism and everyone had these preconceived notions that were was set by a lot of activists and nonprofits in the space i think the last four years the ideas that are being spread on the internet are being set by media companies and producers of um, and food companies 
as well as um, a lot of individuals. So, you know, as more people have control, back to my old uh, distributed uh, media creation that's happened and the democratization of media that's happened, we now have um, various sources for this information and we have consumers that are more informed. That's really the big change I've seen uh, in the last few years. Mm -hmm. in, in, in the terms of market saturation and, you know, fake news, that's definitely <laughs> one thing that um, we have a couple of questions regarding that for, for our doctors in, in our um, health module, yeah. especially about how, how do you combat all these conflicting theories. But um, just the vegan media landscape in, in general, is it becoming harder for, for vegan brands to, to break through? Or is it maybe more a case of, of the audience being more accustomed to, to higher standards in, in terms of content? Because like you said, we are consuming, we are used to getting more content. So we're probably more looking more for, for content that's, that's high quality. So how does a new company, a media startup compete in, in this space? What, what's the best way to, to get in? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not easy. I, I mean, I can't say it's easy, but it's not impossible. And I don't think we can talk about um, vegan media or environmental media without, again, drawing it back to some of the bigger trends that are happening in media in general. And I think, uh, you know, back to the point, there's too much competition for people's attention right now. And there's too much content out there. So we have an abundance of information and uh, a scarcity of attention right now. So if you are a media producer or a brand or a media startup, first and foremost, you have to keep in mind that because of the way media is consumed today, you're not just competing against other people, other companies or media producers like you. You're competing against all media. And just to you know, give some context to that, see how people consume media. In this day and age, people curate their feeds, right? Whether it's through Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter, or newsletters they choose to subscribe to. People are picking what they want to consume because it's just too much out there, right? And they just can't keep up with all of it. So if you if you keep that in mind, you're now competing against all media because the consumers you're trying to reach that are potentially interested in activism and in making conscious choices and in making um, uh, vegan recipes are also following other big entertainment sites, are following big media outlets, they're following celebrities, they're following other niche sites that uh, relate to certain hobbies they're into and they're following their favorite brands and so you're competing with all these other messages out there so you're right that the standards undoubtedly are going higher because to stand out amongst this crowd requires you to stand out and compete with the likes of uh, billion dollar media companies to huge celebrities with millions of followers and then here you are right so who is you know a small startup or an individual even so yes the standards are going higher um, and I think people expect better quality because the bar is being raised but there are some I think interesting examples of people with very little resources 
and pure talent that are still able to rise above all of it. And I think I like to give the example of um, influencers and social media influencers in the space because look at some of the big um, Instagram stars or YouTube stars. Most of them started off as, you know, just with an idea and some talent and a laptop or a phone and have managed to build millions of followers over the years and some of them are now converting those followers and that you know brand equity into real businesses some of them have become um, celebrity chefs some are uh, getting cookbook deals so there is that that's an interesting phenomenon because you have this crowded media landscape and you have big publishers you have celebrities and you have these complete unknowns who are able to rise above all of it by just posting uh, beautiful photos on Instagram or coming up with quick uh, YouTube videos. And I think there's, and I've looked at that phenomenon because I think it, it, sometimes I've looked at what they're doing and thinking, I have a whole team here. How come we are, you know, <laughs> they seem to be getting more likes than we do. Uh, and I think a lot of people wonder that sometimes. And I think if you look at the heart of what they're doing, is and why they succeed is because people like to connect with other people and people like to connect with something authentic and real and people like to feel part of a community and i think that's what those influencers have managed to do even though they had you know zero budgets and um, zero goals in the beginning except to get their um, food or their talent or their work or their face out there so there's you know while there is definitely saturation in in the media space You've got to keep in mind that the only way to rise above that, above that is to focus on what makes you unique, on what makes you original, and, and try to highlight those aspects in the work that you do. Because if you're going to try to be like everyone else, then there's no way you're going to be noticed. So I think that's an important lesson that people forget. Now, translating that into some real success, well, that requires a lot of work. But... As, as, head, as I said, with influencers in the social media space, it's clear that it is yeah. possible. Now, considering everything that you just laid out, if you were to start One Green Planet today, like just starting from zero and knowing what you know, but also taking into account everything that's different in 2017, what, what strategy and tactics would, would you use? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> You know, I think some of our earlier, you know, what my goal with One Green Planet, just to restate that a little bit, was to inform people, to inspire them, empower them to change the way they eat or change the way they view the world and look at certain causes and support them. And my goal was to use the power of media to achieve that. I wanted to make these connections between different movements and also do it in a way that was engaging, entertaining and uplifting. Um, so first and foremost, our goal was to establish a high-quality digital media property that had really exciting content that just happened to have this underlying mission to change people's hearts and minds about their consumption choices. So that's our mission then. That would still be our mission now. But given everything that's happened in the last four years, you know, with, um, with, the, the, with the abundance of content we have out there and the different ways in which people can consume that. If I had to do things today, if I was starting today and it was now in this crowded landscape, I would, uh, I would probably narrow down our focus a little bit. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't narrow down our mission necessarily, but I would go deeper on one specific area. So don't try to be everything. 
try to pick one thing that you do really well and focus on that and um, try to connect with an audience that cares about that one thing and that one thing could be just vegan food or high quality uh, clean eating whole food plant-based recipes or that one thing could be um, you know cute animal videos or rescue videos I would focus on that one thing only um, because that would increase the odds of my success um, secondly I think I would um, I would probably have a bigger focus on video right from the get-go I would um, have a video strategy right in the beginning because I think one of the other things that's happened over the years is in the past four years especially is that long-form written content has uh, taken a real beating I'm not saying it's irrelevant it still has its place but it has its place for certain topics in certain contexts if there's if you want to communicate any message if you can do that in a few seconds or minutes in a video the likelihood that more people are going to see that is much higher so video is increasingly starting to trump um, the written word unfortunately at least as it relates to digital media so I would put a video up front in my strategy let me think what else um, you know I suppose another thing I would do and tying back to this idea I mentioned about how influencers have managed to rise above established brands I think I would focus a little bit on the story of uh, the brand try to figure out what that brand identity is and what our story is and try to focus on telling that story so that we can we can connect again with that audience almost develop a brand personality as I said you know people want to connect with people people want to feel like they're having an authentic connection and they're following someone or some brand that really cares about their values or reflects the same values that they have and I would put time and energy in telling that story focusing on that um, you know I think as a, I guess the bottom line is specialized is better now um, especially if you you know if you're not someone with millions of dollars and can't go and hire 20 writers and build a whole big media startup we didn't have that even when we started off but back then there weren't too many people doing this right now there's too many people doing this so I would pick one thing go with it um, so just to wrap up my points I would you know narrow my focus I guess focus more on video and um, and focus on the story behind what I'm doing in the company that I'm building mm -hmm. or the brand that I'm building right gotcha now if if we go back to, to the changes that you mentioned almost right at the beginning because you said that the um, the role of spreading the, the vegan message has shifted from activists and, and nonprofits to individuals and, and brands. And I think that brands are, are pretty important here. Um, One Green Planet definitely has the finger on the pulse of not just the vegan movement, but also on on the pulse of this industry that's that's growing behind it. So um I want to ask you what what you see as the biggest factor driving these rapid changes that we're seeing or you know maybe it's plural maybe it's biggest factors that we need to talk about here yeah I mean I feel like I'm repeating my point from earlier but I think the big biggest factor that's resulted in the place we are in right now is this um, 
is this explosion of information that we have out there where people have access to more information as a result of having access to more information we have more informed consumers now so consumers know more because you know they can go on youtube or um, do a quick google search and find things that 20 years ago would have been impossible to find so the new informed consumer is demanding better things. They're demanding food that is devoid of pesticides. They're demanding food that is uh, less processed. They're demanding healthier food. They're demanding tastier food. Um, so that informed consumer is now, I think, the key driver. So first, the rise of information, more informed consumers. You know, the way I like to put it is, an empowered consumer leads to an enlightened food industry. Um, and I think that's what we're seeing that's happening right now. So it's this sort of chain reaction, more information, more empowered consumers. Now the food industry has to rise up to meet that need. And so we're seeing better products, better tasting products, products with cleaner ingredients, more sustainable products coming in. So I, and maybe that's just my personal view of it because I, you know, I'm so obsessed with digital media and the connections with our food system. I think media has played a big role the democratization of media has played a big role where people know more and as a result of that they um, expect more and now companies that are producing food have to respond to that need now and um, that's resulted in the shift where everyone's talking about plant-based food and it isn't this um, this niche um, specialized thing that only activists talk about and now as everyone is talking about it they're also starting to control the message and shape the message as it goes forward so no longer it, it, do you only hear go vegan because it is terrible for the environment and it's terrible for animals and there's all this suffering in factory farms instead now you hear here are the benefits of the food uh, here are um, here's what plant-based eating can do to your health here's what um, here's where these ingredients were sourced from and I think um, that's I guess you know my one big driver again is is this big um, social media and explosion of online media really in the so essentially information and, and knowledge that's that's being spread and that's being spread a lot easier than, than it was five or ten or mm -hmm. twenty years ago definitely yeah yeah now, what about the, the future? Because, you know, one thing that I really like about Green Planet is that you're probably the, the biggest vegan, vegan platform out there that's also putting vegan business in the spotlight. I mean, you, you have a whole section of, of the website dedicated just to the industry. And, um, you know, as such, what's, what are some of the biggest trends that you foresee in, in the plant-based sector in the next couple years or a couple decades right wow um, I don't have a crystal ball but I can I can make well, some guesses that, that's the good um, thing about these discussions you know you don't need a crystal ball you can just <laughs> go wild with your assumptions yeah and you know I based most of my um, predictions or um, things I in some ways I think I want to see as well based on what I've noticed in the last few years and um, you know we analyze the performance of our content and we learn from it and we learn from our audience and also we learn from brands that we work with and we talk to um, and I think you know I'll break it down maybe into a few different categories but first and foremost I think the food is going to keep tasting better that's a given right so people want better tasting food um, from a price point I think it's going to keep getting better 
and it's going to be more convenient and accessible. You're going to find it everywhere in the country. That's definitely going to happen. In terms of trends in the space, um, I guess first I'll talk about some general food trends that I see, irrespective of whether they're plant-based or not. Um, and they kind of connect with plant-based, you know. Um, the three big ones I see are, one is people want more simplicity in their food. They are, as I pointed out earlier, they're learning about additives, preservatives, pesticides, processed foods, excess sugar, and they want food that is cleaner with less ingredients. So I think that's going to be an, a, a big trend in the next few years where you're going to see products um, that are available in grocery stores that are packaged, but when you turn around and look at the nutrition label, it is, it is very few ingredients and it is ingredients that are largely real foods. And you'll see a lot more uh, focus on that in the years ahead. Um, so one is simplicity. The other, I think, um, a big thing that you're going to start to notice is functional foods. And what I mean by that is, I think in the last few years, there's been a big trend on uh, free from foods, you know, foods that are free from dairy free and gluten free and grain free and soy free. And I think some of these, you look at some of the food brands out there and their packages are just littered with these um, free of everything. So what, what exactly do you have if you're free of all these things? And I think increasingly consumers want to know what is in the food and what is the benefit of the food. So I'm not saying the free from trend is going to go away. It's needed and I think it'll inform consumers, but I think it'll occupy a smaller space uh, in packaging and in messaging. Um, also, you'll see less focus on uh, specific nutrients. There's been all this focus on protein and uh, carbs and maybe not carbs or maybe low sugar, for example. What I mean by functional foods is foods that are created using a combination of these ingredients. So it will in include protein and, um, and clean ingredients and other ingredients, but the way they will be presented is what benefit will I get from this food? If I consume this, is this food going to energize me? Is it going to be calming? Is it going to be brain boosting? Is it going to be a good food to have before a workout? People are gonna to wanna to know how does that food add to my well-being? So I think functional foods, and you know, there'll be certain ingredients that will become popular as a result of it. So adaptogenic herbs and certain botanicals will become more popular. Superfoods will not be marketed individually, but they'll be mixed together in a form that uh, will be um, touted with the overall health benefits of it. So functional foods is, I think, a big trend overall in the natural food space and undoubtedly as a result of that in the plant-based food space. And I think um, lastly, you'll see transparency becoming a bigger issue. And this will take longer. I don't think it's some trend that you're going to see everyone talking about next year or even the year after that. But as you know, eventually, and this is my hope more than uh, maybe even a prediction, that eventually everyone will produce good tasting, healthy food that is sustainably sourced. And when everyone starts to do that, um, how are you going to stand out? So consumers are going to keep learning more. And as consumers learn more, they're going to expect transparency. They're going to want to know what are these ingredients? Where are they from? Um, what was, how were the workers treated when uh, these ingredients were sourced? They'll want to know about the supply chain. They'll want to know 
about the packaging used. They'll have questions around what the impact on the local ecosystems were uh, from where these foods were produced. And I think now that's less of a concern, but that's going to become more of a concern once the, the playing field is leveled when it comes to taste, price, convenience, health, sustainability. The next thing is going to be, wait, I need to know now where all of this is from, and then that'll be a differentiating factor. So those are some general trends. I've, I, you know, I have a lot of thoughts in this space, so I'm happy to share them. I think on plant-based specifically, when it comes to ingredients, you're going to start to see a shift beyond organic. You know, a lot of people are starting to understand organic is good, you shouldn't have foods with pesticides, and people are looking for the organic certified label. But the organic standards are starting to go lower and lower over the years because they're allowing more companies in. The good news is there's other forms of farming that are emerging. So I think regenerative agriculture is going to become a, a big thing in the years ahead. Uh, so that is a way of growing crops, keeping the soil in mind. So growing crops in a way that preserves nutrients in the soil, that, um, that takes care of the soil and thinks of the long-term health of the soil, and perhaps even sequesters carbon that's released into the atmosphere, into the soil. And so companies are going to talk about how their ingredients were sourced through regenerative agriculture. And I think eventually consumers are going to learn more about it and they will start expecting that perhaps even more than they're expecting organic. So there's going to be some competition there in the years ahead. Uh, another big trend is going to be local, I think. And local has always been a trend, but I think there's some interesting developments in the last few years that's going to make it even bigger, um, and perhaps not so much from an ingredient standpoint in products, but there's, there's a huge uh, um, rise in uh, community and local agriculture in urban areas. So urban farming, rooftop farming, community gardens, and then this whole new subsector of farming um, called um, vertical farming or indoor farming using no soil or no sunshine. So you're able to grow fresh beyond organic uh, vegetables and maybe fruits down the line that are grown throughout the year irrespective of the season are definitely more sustainable perhaps higher in nutritional value and uh, you know are things that people are going to start looking out for i think local is going to be a bigger trend now narrowing down on on more on plant-based i think flavors from a flavor standpoint you're going to see more global flavors um, and I'm, again, speaking from an American context, I think what we've seen in the last four years is the American palate has widened and they are more open to um, spices in, in, in their food and more complex flavors. And I think that's what ex explains the rise of um, Korean food in America. And you're going to, if you follow restaurant trends, you're going to be able to then predict um, what's going to end up in the food industry. So people are going to expect more complex flavor profiles and they're going to expect more variety in taste um, and texture in their food. And lastly, I think, I have to say this obviously, is because uh, we're talking about plant-based foods, you can't talk about it without talking about the fact that we've um, barely explored plant proteins and the benefit of plant proteins and the potential of plant proteins. Traditionally, when you think of plant proteins, you think of uh, you know, soy and wheat protein, perhaps pea protein in the last few years because of a few companies. There's a lot more research being done right now in terms of tapping into um, thousands of plants out there that could potentially be 
use as a ways to extract protein and then convert them into products. And the products you're going to see are everything from non-dairy beverages to, uh, of course, plant-based meats that are going to use different protein sources, keeping in mind their nutritional value um, as well as um, sustainability. So that's a huge trend in the years ahead. So there's a lot of exciting things happening and uh, a lot to look forward to. But, you know, kind of to sum it up on this front too, back to my earlier point, consumers want more healthier, sustainable food that's convenient and available everywhere. It just so happens that plant-based slash vegan food meets all or most of those criteria. So, you know, I think it's a perfect, you know, alignment of the stars at this point where consumers want these things and plant-based foods largely tend to offer those things. And, you know, there's also unfortunately a lot a rise in, in food allergies and, uh, you know, plant-based foods play a key role there because they tend to be um, devoid of some, you know, real big allergens like uh, dairy, for example. So. I think it's an exciting time, um, no matter how and why people are getting into the space, there's going to be really amazing products to look out for and am amazing trends to look out for, not just from a standpoint of someone who's been used to eating not so good vegan food in the past and now has access to better vegan food, but more from the standpoint of everyone starting to shift their diets in this direction. Um, so. You know, I think that's just what yeah. I think about. Now, if we boil this down to opportunities that, that will open, what what sort of new brands can we expect or what's, what business opportunities are, are opening with, with all these trends? I mean, numerous. I mean, if you're an individual um, who's interested in this space, you know, I think it's going to open job opportunities for a lot of people specifically. Um, you could be a scientist, a technologist, a writer, um, chef, um, podcaster, anything. You could have any talent and any skill and you can apply it to this space. So we're going to see people start to jump into this space um, and start companies and um, get jobs in this space. That's one big thing. Um, not so much an opportunity, but maybe perhaps a challenge people are going to have to overcome is and I, you know, I can't talk about the future without talking about what's going to happen to the media space as we evolve, right? Because you have to keep in mind that if you're a food company, a media startup, an individual blogger, podcaster, YouTuber, your goal is going to be to curate an audience that kind of cares about the things that you care about, right? First, you need to have an audience. And when you have the audience, you can then convert them into paying subscribers or paying customers. But first and foremost, you need that audience. So I think at the end of the day, everyone's going to have to be better at um, telling their story. They're going to have to be better at, and I said that before in terms of the importance of storytelling and, and media. I really think there's three areas people need to focus on more um, in the years ahead is one is everyone is in the content business no matter what your end product is, because of the rise of digital media and social media and smartphones, everyone has to create content. And anyone who has any product knows that. If you don't have a website, if you don't have a social media presence, you don't have content being created, people will forget about you or they won't understand what your product is about. So people need to do, you know, it's called content marketing. And I think uh, 
The problem is most people don't have a good understanding of what that means. They assume, oh, okay, I have to create content. Great, I'll write a blog post. I'll put up a video without first sitting and asking themselves, what is my brand? What is my story? What is my product? What are the benefits of it? Who really wants this? And then being able to tell that story in an effective way, coming up with a content strategy and then measuring the performance of every piece of content you put out there so you know are people even looking at it or reading it or you're just putting this out there and you think you're, it's very beautiful and eloquent and profound, but no one cares. So content's important. Social media is a, is a big opportunity to do more. And I think there's, as I said earlier, there's so much you can do if you just focus on the right thing. Again, when it comes to social media, people assume that um, you need to have an Instagram account, a Twitter account, a Facebook account, and then you just need to post stuff. I wish it were that easy. Um, it's changed in the last four years. Maybe in the beginning, the whole thing was, how many followers do I have? I think that matters less. What matters more is how engaged your followers are. Um, how connected are they to your core message? And then to what extent can you use social media, not just as a means to post that content that you've come up with, but as a means to engage with people. You know, Back to my earlier point, people want to connect with people. Social media is a great way to do that. So ask people questions, you know, um, communicate with them, um, answer the questions that they have and sort of use social media as a means to establish a relationship. And then also use the right social media channels because, you know, what your product may be may work better on Facebook or may work better on Instagram. Know what works best with your end audience. So understand who you are and understand who your end consumer of your media is and then try to do those two things together. And the third big thing I think is there's a huge, um, there's a huge opportunity out there for uh, outreach. And I think some people call it PR. Um, I think of it as um, PR is limiting because people traditionally mean PR to mean reaching out to big media platforms. Yes, you need to do that, of, of course, but I think of outreach as much larger than that. If you think of this plant-based movement or the entire food space or the entire internet digital media ecosystem, your goal has to be how to craft your message and present it to the right people. And just to give you an example, um, we get pitched often by every food brand out there who's got a new product um, and I'm shocked at how little originality they use when they pitch us. Um, some of them are companies selling beef jerky, for example. They don't even bother to check our site to see what we do. So first and foremost, what it is that you do, look at the media property you're pitching at or the people you're pitching to. Does your brand, does your product align with that? Does it align with the audience? If it doesn't, then forget about it, right? Um, if you've got a non-dairy beverage product, you're not going to pitch a publisher called gotcowsmilk.com, if that even existed out there. But you know, you'll be surprised at how little, you know, people take their templated messages and they use a one size fits all approach and then they just blast that to everyone. Again, it's more about one to one relationships now. And how can you curate your message, present it in a manner that, if, that, that other people will connect to. So if you're pitching someone like One Green Planet, you know, know what we typically write about, reference that, and then use that as a means to talk about your product and why it would relate to our, our consumers and our end users. So I think those are the opportunities. So I think there's a lot out here, which, you know, if people want to get into the space or are already in the space, there's a lot you can do, but 
I think it's it's very tricky to navigate these uh, these treacherous times where you have uh, too much information and um, people are almost drowning in content at the moment and um, and don't even know what to. Yeah, one on. one opportunity that I'm seeing here in in what you're saying, or one extremely useful skill to have either for for getting a job or for starting something to to help others is is the skill of storytelling. And, and the skill mm -hmm. of connecting, which which is something that we as humans have actually had for thousands and, and thousands of years, and and we've treasured it. But um, yeah. it, it's interesting how we keep coming back to to the same thing that that's brought us so far. Yeah, the environment where we tell these stories and we communicate keeps changing and evolving, right? It 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 keeps broadening and getting bigger. But in some ways, it's it's also getting smaller because the you know the internet connects everyone everywhere now. So, how do you do that? And of course, no, by no means am I saying that um, if you're say a food manufacturer or if you're a chef or you're making the next big uh, plant-based burger, does your core strength have to be storytelling? You know, I think at the end of the day. It's important for people to focus on what their core strengths are and know when to get help from the outside as well. So, you know, I often when I talk to companies in the space, I say, you do what you do really well. Uh, let us help you tell the stories. And, you know, that's been a core tenet of what we've done right from the beginning is, you know, we've had quality content, but we've always collaborated. We've always reached out to people. We've always you know, even far back in the early days of One Green Planet, when we were talking to farm sanctuaries, we would say, you know, why don't we take those stories of your farm animals and tell those stories? And when we were talking to brands, we would ask them questions about, so tell us about the founders. Tell us why you started this company. Now, given if you have a bad product, none of these stories matter. So first and foremost, focus on a great product and, you know, know what your story is and then, um, you know, tell it yourself to the extent you can and when you are able to and can afford it you know bring in professionals work with others who can help you craft those messages can help you create content do social media and um, help spread your message using influencers or big media platforms but you know at the end of the day it comes down to how if you're original and you're authentic people will um, will listen to you and if you're uh, faking it or you know reading a template or you know reciting the same thing again and again people would tune you out and they have the power to yeah, do that exactly now, now I, I just wanted to rephrase that question about opportunities that i asked you um into what what kind of people do do we need to drive this industry forward to to move it forward what what passions what skills besides storytelling of course are are necessary to to get to the future that we've been discussing for, for the past 10 minutes. Yeah, I think every kind of skill, you know, um, you need, I, I think I may have mentioned it, but you need, you know, you need scientists, you need people who are into technology, you need uh, um, talented chefs, you need, um, you need uh, researchers, you need, um, you need everyone. I think the interesting part, what's really happening and what gives me the most hope is that I'm starting to see more people with really established skill sets and specialties in certain areas 
that are waking up to the same things that I woke up to back in 2010, right? So my core skill set was digital media and using the power of storytelling and content and reaching people online. Um, I've seen that happen with other people who've entered the plant-based food space. Um, there's medical professionals who are now, you know, who are very qualified and trained and now are using those skills to apply them to this space. So you have people who are restaurant owners who um, have suddenly woken up to the idea that majority of the food that they were serving in their restaurants was destroying the planet and killing billions of animals and then had this awakening and decided, no, we need to change things. And then they become, you know, they bring those skills into the space that really needs it versus, you know, back to the first point we started off with, you know, in the past, it was always activists who said, you know, we need other forms of activism and we need to change the world and we're going to create more plant-based food and we're going to make better tasting plant-based food. Now it's starting to change. You have, um, you know, several companies that are being established by people who are experts in their little fields, whether established entrepreneurs or scientists and other professionals who are now using those skills, that knowledge, that insight and applying it to a problem that really needs to be solved which is our terribly destructive food system which is leading us down a path where we won't be able to feed the world in uh, in the next 30 yeah. years and if we look on on the bright side and the potential of, of all of this when it comes to the plant-based movements in, in general what does winning look like to you Oh, yeah, I think that's a, it's a good image to have in mind. I think I would, I would probably break it down into winning for me looks like a world where people consume less meat, a world where plant-based packaged products have largely replaced uh, things that people have in their rep refrigerators or their pantries. So plant-based versions of things like butter and cheese and milk and perhaps even condiments mayo and other things maybe even chicken and ground beef or cold cuts they've been replaced by plant-based versions for a lot of people and thirdly that people are embracing whole plant foods a lot more especially ones that are locally grown in a manner that is sustainable i think that's going to happen but from an impact standpoint, I think we're going to end up in a place where we have a much healthier population that is living um, in harmony with the laws of the environment, with in natural balance with the environment, which is definitely not happening right now. Uh, secondly, hopefully, I think we'll end up with a food system that not only nourishes us, but that does it in a way that sustains all life on Earth. Um, and I think that's really important. And thirdly, I think we'll have food technology that actually enriches our lives versus being used to trick us into buying more fast, cheap, unhealthy food, which has been the case for the last several years. I think overall, we'll just have a kinder, healthier, happier planet with a kinder, healthier, happier population of humans. Yeah, and that's definitely a good image to, to keep in mind, I, I agree. <laughs> You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. 
To learn more about how Eat for the Planet can help your brand or organization develop the right strategy, implement scalable operations, and grow responsibly, visit EFTP.co. That's EFTP.co. Let's rise up to the challenge of transforming our food system. Thank you for listening. Headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com